Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor, president, and ninja master of the Crux Catholic Media Empire. We're your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at www.cruxnow.com. I'm also the host of this stellar program, Last Week in the Church. This is our showcase video offering in which we take what is often stale news, because it happened a while ago, but we throw it into the Crux skillet, sprinkle on some spice and our secret Crux brand sauce, serve it up piping hot. This is also our new Tuesday edition of Last Week in the Church. We used to come out Mondays, now it's Tuesdays. Second day of the week, so we're delivering twice the fun. At least, that's our story, and we're sticking by it. Here's what we've got for you this week. I spy in the Vatican? The Vatican's second most powerful official, according to a new report, believed his office was bugged and didn't trust the Vatican's own security service to handle the situation. When even a funeral is political, the participation of a senior Vatican cardinal and key papal ally at the funeral on Saturday of a controversial Canadian bishop raises some eyebrows. Benedict Speaks, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, has issued his own personal response to charges that it, while he was the Archbishop of Munich from 1977 to 1982, he mishandled four cases of clerical sexual abuse. His response has generated controversy. Running the numbers. The Vatican has published its annual statistical yearbooks, and there are some interesting nuggets to be gleaned therein. And finally, Senate update. The Office of the Vatican Synod of Bishops has reported that diocesan preparations for the next global gathering of bishops in 2023 are going great, except where they're not. <laughs> That's what we've got for you this week. Please stick around. All right. Well, happy Tuesday to you. Thanks for spending part of your Tuesday with us here on Last Week in the Church. Like, if I, listen, we record this on Mondays, okay? And our production team needs until Tuesday to get everything together. So I'm speaking to you Monday morning. Now, like millions of Americans, I watched the Super Bowl. Unlike most Americans, uh, I did it in Italy's time zone. So kickoff here was about 12.30 Monday morning, and the game wrapped up around 4.30. So if I seem unusually groggy or incoherent to you, that may be why, although I realize it may be hard to tell the difference from my normal shtick. Here's where we're beginning this, where we're beginning this week. I spy in the Vatican. Venezuelan Archbishop Edgar Peña Para, according to a new report in a respected Italian news agency, Sometime last year, in 2019-2020, believed that his office was being bugged. And his basis for this, according to the report, is that lots of private conversations he was having in his office suddenly seemed to be known by everyone. Now, you know, I'm not really sure how he got from that to necessarily the office was bugged, because to me, that just seems fairly par for the course for the Vatican. I mean, you know the old joke about the Vatican? It's a place where everything is a mystery and nothing is a secret, right? I mean, it leaks like 
you know, a faucet that hasn't been, you know, treated in like 50 years. But in any event, Peñapara apparently had reason to believe that there might have been electronic surveillance. Interesting part of the story to me is that to respond to that, he asked, a, he asked one of his aides, a guy by the name of Mons Don Mauro Carlino, who would later go on to become one of the defendants in the London real estate megatrial. Footnote to that, I, I've always been cheering for Carlino in this process, because the thing of it is, in Italian, Carlino means pug. And of course, the official mascots of the Crux corporate media empire are two pugs, <laughs> two black pugs, Augusto and Gelsomina, or Gus and Mina, as we call them. Every time I hear Carlino's name, that's who I think of. And so I I'm hoping at the end he's got clean hands. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, Peña Paro asked his aide, his, his secretary, who at the time was Carlino, to introduce him to someone from the Italian intelligence service. So apparently Carlino hit up a buddy who knew somebody, and somebody, I don't know if this was off the books or the, this was an official request, this is not made clear, but in any event, I guess, some agents of the Italian security service did a sweep of Peña Parra's office and presented him with some kind of report. We don't know what was in that report. But what is interesting is who Peña Parra didn't ask. He didn't ask the Vatican gendarmes, who, in theory, have responsibility for the security of Vatican properties and allegedly have the technical capacity to do these kind of sweeps. You know, the only possible conclusion is that maybe Peña Parra thought that the gendarmes were actually the ones who had bugged the office. Now, you know, we have no basis to think that that's actually true, but I do think it's illustrative of a certain climate within the Vatican, and I think especially in the Secretary of State, where, to be honest with you, trust is sometimes in short supply. Just, you know, to, to say things as they are. All right. When even a funeral becomes political. On February 1st, 90, I believe it was 98, maybe 97, I can't remember, but in any event, Bishop Remy de Rue, the long-serving bishop of the Diocese of Victoria in Canada, died. De Rue was the last living bishop who had attended all four sessions of Vatican II as a bishop. He was appointed before the first session began in 1962, and he was there through the end in 1965. So he was like a living connection to Vatican II. Remy de Rue was what I think would conventionally be described as a progressive or a liberal figure in Catholic life. He openly advocated making priestly celibacy optional, if not doing away with it altogether. And he also openly advocated the ordination of women. Now, as you know, in, uh, under Popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI, Publicly advocating the ordination of women was kind of the third rail, right? I mean, if you touched it, you got fried. And although de Rue was never formally censured, he was called to Rome to get a tongue lashing by then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. When de Rue published a book, there were some Canadian dioceses that wouldn't even take ads for it in their Catholic papers. 
There were some places he couldn't get invited to speak and so on. He was very popular in kind of ultra-liberal Catholic reform circles, so like spoke at call-to-action conferences and so on. So definitely seen as, you know, somebody who represented a kind of pushing the envelope version of the Catholic left. I think it is deeply unlikely that had he died during the John Paul or Benedict years, there would have been big-time Vatican rep representation at the funeral. And yet, at Saturday's funeral, there was Canadian Cardinal Michael Cherney. Cardinal Cherney, a Jesuit, runs the section on migrants and refugees within the Vatican's dicastery for promoting integral human development. He's kind of Pope Francis's go-to guy on migrant and refu refugee issues. And given how important those issues are to Pope Francis, he therefore is a papal intimate, somebody who has the Pope's ear, and somebody who is seen as representing the Pope's thought, right? So the fact that Cherney was at the funeral, in a sense, is almost like Pope Francis via a surrogate being at the funeral. And, and that has raised some eyebrows in some circles that don't think that a bishop who advocated positions at odds with official church teaching should be celebrated in quite that way. Now, in all fairness, Cherney acknowledged in his remarks at the funeral that, that de Rue had been a controversial figure, but he praised him over the course of his career for keeping alive the spirit of Vatican II, for pressing the, the Catholic Church in Canada to drop its traditional posture of defensiveness and engage the surrounding society, in particular, engaging Canada's indigenous population. De Rue was a very beloved figure among those folks. And, you know, if you think about it, look, you know, whatever you thought about De Rue's politics or his theology, I mean, this is a guy who served as a diocesan. Oh, and we should also note that there was a scandal surrounding De Rue because he almost bankrupted the Diocese of Victoria because he was very old school when it came to money. He didn't really check with anybody when he invested it. He just kind of followed his nose and it did not work out particularly well. But, you know, whatever you think of his theology or his management style, this was a guy who served the Diocese of Victoria by his own lights as best he could from 1962 to 1999. That's 37 years as a diocesan bishop. And, you know, if you want to be at all Christian about these things, I mean, you know, surely there's nothing necessarily wrong with that kind of fidelity being recognized from on high you know, whatever you want to make of the politics of it. All right, third, Benedict speaks. So as you well know, of late, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has been in the news a fair bit because a report on clerical sexual abuse in the Archdiocese of Munich over the last 74 years identified almost 300 victims of clerical sexual abuse and it also uh, identified a number of cases in which the claims of these survivors were not appropriately handled, including, according to the report, four such cases, while Archbishop, later Cardinal, Joseph Ratzinger was head of the Archdiocese of Munich. He, of course, went on to become Pope Benedict. Now, it seems pretty much everybody has popped off on this story, except Pope Benedict himself. We finally got his long-awaited answer this past week. And it came in the form of two documents. 
One was a personal letter from Pope Benedict. The other was an analysis of the report prepared by a team of attorneys, German attorneys, on Pope Benedict's behalf. To, to start with that analysis, basically, I'll, I'll spare you the fine print. What the lawyers concluded is that in none of these cases is there any evidence that the future pope actually knew about the abuse being committed. That is, the claim is he didn't know. Now, they don't engage the, the ancillary criticism, which is, well, okay, but he was in charge of the diocese. He should have known. That's not part of their analysis, but they do insist there is absolutely no evidence that the future pope ever knowingly engaged in a cover-up of sex abuse. As far as Benedict's own response, he, he apologizes for his failures over his career, but he insists he never lied. This is a reference to a kind of mini-tempest that broke out when it turned out that when Benedict told the researchers on this report he wasn't at a certain meeting in 1980 where one of these priests was talked about, it turns out he actually was and he had simply forgotten about it. It's important to note that the minutes of that meeting show that the, the, this priest's abuse were never discussed. It's just what was on the table was that a priest from outside the diocese was coming into Munich for some therapy, and Ratzinger said, well, okay. Nobody ever told him that the problems that the priests were encountering had to do with sexual abuse. Anyway, so they claim he didn't know. Ratzinger apologizes in a generic sense, but claims he didn't lie, and also says at the end that despite his failures and despite his weakness, what gives him confidence is the supreme conviction he enjoys that God has already forgiven him and that he will enjoy God's forgiveness and mercy in the next life as well. Now, you know, I think if you just look at this straight on, it's kind of a moving personal statement from a guy who maybe doesn't feel like he was dirty on the specific cases cited in this report, but nevertheless knows he failed in many ways and is trying to own up to that, while at the same time trying to share his profound Christian faith in the mercy of God. Politically, it has to be said, the, the letter didn't play especially well in some circles. I think survivors didn't like the fact that he never really took responsibility for the cases cited in Munich, and they would be the ones arguing that if he didn't know, he should have known. It was his job to know. And the fact that he never even acknowledged that, I think, created. And also, this business about how he's sure God has forgiven him, I don't know, I think that struck some survivors and some other observers as a kind of, I don't know, not contrite enough, not penitent enough. You know, a colleague of mine interviewed me the day after all this came out and asked me the question, does this change Benedict XVI's legacy? My answer is, a legacy is always in the eye of the beholder. And in this case, I don't think it moves the needle much at all. Those who were already inclined to give Benedict the benefit of the doubt because they see him as a moral and theological hero, I think will continue to do so. Those who were already inclined to see him as the poster boy for what's wrong with the Catholic Church probably won't be jarred out of that by his plaintive and kind of heartfelt letter either. So I, I think that's where we are. All right, fourth on the rundown this week, running the numbers. The Vatican published its annual statistical yearbooks this month or this week, this past week. In the main, no big surprises. 
showed that the Catholic Church added 16 million new Catholics globally last year. Footnote, that's more than the entire Catholic population of Canada, which is about 13 million. But that growth was basically in keeping with overall global population growth. It found that the growth was most intense in Africa, parts of Asia, and least intense in the West, Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand. And it also found that the majority of Catholic priests these days are working in the West. The majority of the Catholic population is living outside the West. These are things we already knew. The new report simply says they are still true. Three observations, very quickly. Number one, it is deeply interesting, I think, to reflect on the fact that at the beginning of the 20th century, the world's global Catholic population was a little over 200 million, and right now it's 1.36 billion. What that means is that the 20th and early 21st centuries have been the greatest period of expansion in the history, in the more than 2,000 year history of the Catholic Church. I know in the West, we often think that the, the dominant Catholic story of our time is decline, right? Contraction. People are leaving. Things are getting smaller. We can't get youngins to come to church. And often that's because we look around and in our neighborhoods, maybe what we see is parishes consolidating or closing, schools closing, we're having to cluster things. We can't get enough priests to say mass sometimes. And so it feels like the church is shrinking to us. But ladies and gentlemen, the truth is the Catholic Church is now and has been for some time experiencing breakneck, runaway, astronomic growth. On a global scale, the fundamental challenge of the Catholic Church today is not managing contraction. It's keeping up with growth. Okay, that's observation number one. Observation number two is that right now, more than two-thirds of those 1.36 billion Catholics live in Africa, Asia, Latin America, pockets of the Middle East. Almost half of them live in Latin America alone. The Catholic population of Europe and in North America, Australia, New Zealand, counts for less than one-third. And projections are that by the middle of this century, the non-Western share of the Catholic Church will be three-quarters. That is, three out of every four Catholic women, men, and children alive will live outside the Western sphere. This is the greatest transformation of Catholicism since St. Paul went from Asia Minor to Greece and Rome, thereby transforming Christianity from a sect within Palestinian Judaism to a truly universal faith. And we're living through it right now. Conclusion, you only have two choices in thinking about the Catholic Church in the 21st century. You either think globally or you think wrong. That's it. Those are the only two items on the menu. If you think that Western or American experiences, priorities, instincts, and desires are going to be the engine that drives the Catholic train, you're living in a fool's paradise. Third observation, if the Catholic Church had its management act together. You know what it would do? It would take its pastoral personnel and reallocate them to where its people are. Right now, two-thirds of the Catholic population in the world is outside the West, but almost two-thirds of the priests are inside the West. 
And you know what? That problem is becoming steadily worse because dioceses in Europe and North America on, on a growing scale are importing priests from the developing world to fill their own perceived shortages. You know what the priest-to-person ratio in Europe is right now according to official Vatican numbers? It's one priest for every 1,746 Catholics. And actually, if, you, if we were to do this like the weather, right, and talk about the real feel index, not what's the actual temperature, but what does it feel like? The truth is the real feel index in Europe is that that ratio is even smaller because a good majority of those 1,746 Catholics for every priest are not putting any demands on the priest's time because they don't go to church. They don't show up. Meanwhile, the priest-to-person ratio in Africa is one priest for every 5,308 Catholics, and those Catholics do show up. That priest is exceptionally busy. Take another index of how topsy-turvy all this is. There are the roughly exactly the same number of Catholic priests in North America, the United States and Canada, as there are in all of Africa, even though North America has a Catholic population of 80 million, and Africa is almost four times that at around 240 million. Does this make any sense to you? No. And this is a problem that church officials either know or should have known for an awful long time, and yet by osmosis, paralysis, and drift, we're just allowing this to get steadily worse. Somebody, sometime, is going to have to deal with this. Next up, a progress report from the Senate of Bishops the office for the Senate of Bishops in, in the Vatican, now led by Maltese Cardinal uh, Mario Grec, issued a brief progress report this week on preparations for the next Senate of Bishops in 2023. This, of course, is the Synod on Synodality. So a gathering to, I guess, reflect upon the ways the church can be ever more synodal. We are right now in the diocesan phase of the preparations for that synod. Pope Francis has approved a kind of new three-step process. So it's first at the level of parishes and dioceses, then at the level of bishops' conferences and continental groupings of conferences, and then finally the actual summit of bishops in October 2023. And so this progress report, was directed at the diocesan phase, saying basically it's going great. According to this report, over 90% of local churches are doing something. However, it also noted a number of challenges, including the suspicion of some laity that they're not going to be listened to, that their input is just going to be ignored, and maybe even more fundamentally, the reluctance of some clergy, is what it says. Now, it doesn't say reluctance to do what, but one imagines a reluctance to take this seriously, put resources into it, and so on. And, you know, I mean, it's understandable, isn't it? Like, okay, here's the thing. The Senate of Bishops finally showed up at our local parish here in Rome this past Sunday. Up to this point, my wife and I go to church every week, and we hadn't heard word one about the Synod in any context in our parish. But on Sunday, it was announced that our parish's process is going to begin, and what's going to happen is that there are going to be three Sunday afternoon get-togethers where, you know, there's going to be a scripture reading and a meditation, and then 
we're going to break off into groups and, you know, talk about what's going on at the parish and how it can be more central, I guess. Really, what we're going to talk about wasn't specified in any tremendous way. I'm going to be completely honest with you. My wife and I had the strong impression that our parish was doing this mostly because they had been told to do it by the Diocese of Rome. And I don't know. I mean, I may be wrong, but I didn't get the sense that at least the priest who was outlining this for us on Sunday was just a fire with enthusiasm. And of course, you know, if you think about the life of a priest, it is a very busy life, right? Especially if the parish is humming, and our parish is. I mean, it's a very vibrant parish. You know, all the stuff you have to do. And so all of a sudden you're told, now you have to have more meetings for purposes that maybe aren't entirely clear to you. And you have to write more reports. And maybe you have to participate in even more meetings down the line. I mean, naturally, some guys are going to be reluctant, right? So perhaps what was needed from the Synod of Bishops at this point is a clearer explanation of the value of this exercise for the parish, the diocese, and the universal church. One that would light a fire under clergy and help them to understand why they ought to spend even more of their precious time and energy on this project. Otherwise, you know what the risk here is? The risk is what's going to kick in is a bit of wisdom I heard from a pastor here in Rome 20 years ago when I first got to town. It was right after some new decree from the Italian Bishops' Conference had come out. And I asked him in my faltering Italian what he thought of it. His answer? Madai. Ormai, il cestino migliore di un particle. No, sorry. Il secretario migliore di un particle e il cestino. Meaning, you know what? By now, the best secretary a pastor can have is the trash can. That is what we don't want for this Senate, and that might be what, you know, uh, a little bit more information from on top would help uh, avoid. Finally, very quickly, it's super. As I said, I watched the Super Bowl last night, which means I watched the MVP winning performance of Cooper Cup, the phenomenal all-world wide receiver for the Los Angeles Rams, that last drive where they scored the go-ahead touchdown with a minute 58 to go, every player on the field, every fan in the stadium knew that every one of Matthew pa Stafford's passes were going to Cooper Cup, and he still managed to haul them in, and he still managed to score. It was heroic. Now, in post-game interviews, Cup, when asked what he was feeling, his reactions to all of this, generally led with matters of religious faith. He, he talked about the glory of God, how he was trying to do all of this for God's kingdom, how important faith is to he and his wife and his family. If you peel back the onion a little bit, you will note that Cook is a very committed, non-denominational, evangelical Christian. He has posted YouTube videos promoting services at churches that he goes to. He has written testimonials for pastors who have meant something to him over the course of his life. He is, as the saying goes, all in. You know, as fate would have it, my wife and my buddy and I last night, before the Super Bowl started, we watched American Underdog, the, the new movie about Kurt Warner, who was the quarterback of the L.A. Rams, of the Rams, they were in St. Louis at the time, but he was the Rams quarterback the last time they won a Super Bowl. He too was a deep person of faith, and if you scratch the surface in sports, you will find a remarkable reservoir of faith 
there. Now, the thing of it is, we all know what happens in these post-game interviews, right? A guy starts talking about God. The reporter politely waits for him to finish. And then, okay, on that play where you scored the touchdown, was that an out pattern that broke? In other words, there's never any follow-up. There's never any engagement. I Just quick memo to my colleagues on the sports beat. Like, if I were trying to cover the Vatican without taking note of how Italian this place is, I think I would probably be missing an important element of the story. And if you're trying to cover the sports beat without ever noticing or dealing with how religious that environment often is, I would suggest you're missing something too. I think it would be interesting to hear more from these guys about how their faith and their, their competitiveness, their, their sports drive are interrelated and interwoven if their faith in any way leavens the way they play, what their goals are. I just think that would be a very interesting part of the story. It's unfortunate nobody ever seems to pursue it. And yes, that's a wild overgeneralization, but hey, I've only got a half hour. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. We will be here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.